This is episode five of the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed physician or mental health practitioner. I'm your host, Anna Holden, an intuitive, energy alchemist, Ayurvedic health educator, and yoga teacher, as well as the founder of Sensitivity Uncensored and the Sacred Rebellion. Each week on the podcast, I explore different aspects of living a soulful, sensitive life. I'll bring you stories of other sensitive, creative pioneers, as well as my own thoughts, teachings, and tools. This is not the beginner's guide to sensitivity, but rather the place for sensitive souls to gather up their courage and pioneer their way into a life of personal freedom and spiritual sovereignty. Your sensitivity is sacred. Are you ready to live that way? Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Abigail Rose Clark. She's a somatic educator focusing on anti-oppression education and strategic somatic methods to create lasting change in our personal and professional lives, rippling out from individual to systemic change. By helping people truly inhabit their own skin and blood and guts and bones, she offers a way to re-enter into true relationship with the world. As the developer of the Embodied Life Method, Abigail teaches embodiment as a practice and a responsibility. As the world shakes and burns and floods, as white supremacy takes its death gasps, we are tasked with the enormous responsibility of remaining present to the world as it is, which requires we remain present to ourselves as we are. From here, the way forward becomes possible. Abigail's work is enormously influenced by her study and practice of Embody Yoga, of which she is a senior teacher, as well as her background as a trained scientist. In addition to online and in-person teaching of the Embodied Life Method, Abigail also trains yoga teachers in the U.S. and Mexico, where she makes her home in the indigenous village of Yalapa on the Jalisco coast. Hi, Abigail, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Anna. I am so, I'm, I'm so excited for our conversation today and, and truthfully a little bit nervous <laughs> um, because we're talking about some, you know, some heavy, a heavy, complicated topic. We're t- going to talk about white supremacy mm-hmm. today. Yeah. And we're going to talk about what it is, how it works. You know, what part do we as sensitive spiritual white women play in white supremacy? And, and for the listeners of this podcast who have been with me uh, from the beginning, you'll know that up until now, we've done a lot of conversations on resourcing, on learning to build um, greater capacity and resiliency within our bodies and our systems. And these types of topics that I'll be introducing um, in the next uh, over the next course of the next couple of months are, are part of the reasons we need that. We've talked about, you know, using our self-care as a way to come back into life, to be able to meet the demands of life. And so this is one of those places where we're going to use that. Okay. 
Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I love, um, Abigail, that a lot of your work um, within these anti-white supremacist spaces talks about, you know, toning the nervous system and getting prepared to be able to stay in discomfort. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. The primary, because that's, that is where my background primarily lies is in somatic teaching and, and mindfulness work. Um, and yoga meditation uh, is where I got started. So, um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And that's what's been most found for me in dismantling, in the process of dismantling my own white supremacy. Absolutely. You know, and, and most of our listeners are highly sensitive. And so we, you know, if you're, if, if listeners remember back to episode two, where I talk about, you know, we have this incredible ability to sense disturbance, to be the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, white supremacy is one of these major traumas happening in the world right now. And I know that we feel it. And, and and I realized that I didn't know what to do about it, except like not be a racist, you know, (laughs) 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 know. right. Which I realized was, was not at all adequate. And so that's when I found Abigail. And so Abigail, this is, you know, interesting to me that, you know, you've been in the business, like uh, in business as a somatic uh, therapy practitioner and as a business coach, and now you're leading these anti-white supremacy spaces. So can you talk to us a bit about this change? Yeah, sure. I know it's, it's, a, it's been an interesting one. Um, so about, so I went to school for exercise therapy and, um, uh, psychology. So I was there, and it was basically because I was deeply immersed in the Embody Yoga teacher training, of which I'm now a senior teacher of Embody Yoga, which is a blend of Tantra Hatha Yoga with the work of Bonnie Rivers Cohen, uh, which is body mind centering, which is a, a very deep somatic practice. Mm-hmm. So I was, um, I went back to school, the college late to study psychology and exercise science. And then, um, Soon after that, uh, didn't go to grad school like I thought I was going to do, and, and so just, uh, switched my life around. And so I'd been working, um, facilitating, um, holding women's circles, and, and sort of facilitating all women's uh, spaces for about ten years at that point, or a little under ten years at that point. And so when I was suddenly sort of cut free from this academic path that I'd been on, I. Um, you know, it was funny because what happened was is that people were asking me, people I've been working with as a yoga teacher were asking me to continue um, working with them, even though I was not traveling. So I wasn't able to be in part, like be present in the same room and teach them yoga. But um, so much of doing a continual, very deeply embodied yoga practice um, was changing people's relationship to the world around them. Mm. And so I sort of like, I, I, I started um, doing online coaching work and only then realized that it was like this thing, right? That this like <laughs> this sort of strange new world of um, of women coaching other women and then, um, and you know, like creating all these courses and I did B-school and all of this. It was like this strange new world that I suddenly found myself in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for doing that, you know, it was right around the time when business coaching was like the like it was like I fell into the trend in a certain kind of way and you know in an educated way because I really love strategy and I love um helping people figure out uh, a really clear and strategic way forward mm-hmm. so um I started doing business coaching and I was having you know like moderate success 
Uh, but then I started slowly realizing that I was doing business coaching with the idea that, you know, like they, um, you, you tell them what they, like, what's the quote? You tell them what they want, but you give them what they need. And so it was like, people would come to me for website help, but we'd end up actually talking through sort of, here's how you get into the body more so that you're not getting stuck thinking about, you know, like all the different possible possibilities because my audience sounds a lot like your audience, or at least my audience before I started talking about white supremacy so much, <laughs> was um, very, very uh, sensitive people who almost like, um, like I felt like I was a business coach for people who feel too much, like people who were just yes. like too in the experience of the world and then couldn't quite make a clear way forward. Yes. So I was doing that, but then little by little realizing that, that you know, although it was, it was nice to have this sort of entryway of having people be like, I want to, I want to build a website. I want to figure out, you know, like what even career I want or how to sort of make my, make my goals happen. While that was an, an interesting in road, it wasn't really the one that I wanted and it wasn't really what people were coming to me for. So, um, after being in that work for about four years, um, this last summer, I hired Lena West, who's a black Latina. And so I hired her specifically because I was like, you know, if I'm going to work with a business coach, I don't want to work. I want to work with not with a woman of color, both to like hire and pay women of color, which is crucial. And also because I wanted to make sure that as I was growing my business, that I wasn't going to fall into these sort of the traps of using social justice work as sort of a branding technique rather than actually radically changing the ways that we do business. So I had known Lena West for a long time and really respected her. And so finally was in a position to hire her. As soon as I did, basically, we sat down and we were just like, you know what, you're not a I'm like, I don't think I'll business coach. She's like, you're not. So we switched everything around and just like, I started focusing exclusively on the body and how the body um, really is the gateway. I'm sorry, I'm outside and there's lots of dogs. You're going to probably hear barking. Um, <laughs> and then it was like, and then, so I, I had, so I started working exclusively with people sort of in that, in that way, like not like definitely we talk about work and career, but instead of using work and career as the, as the entry point, the body is the entry point. And it, I realized that really by, by doing that, I was, um, I was trusting my audience to find me and they were, it was feeling really good. And then, um, basically, you know, in one of those strange social media <laughs> moments, <laughs> um, I got suddenly quite visible right around, um, like, actually, it was that uh, Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, like, you know, the anti-Columbus Day weekend. Yes. Um, I called a thing a thing, which was, and the thing being a white woman who had quite a large platform using social justice work to, um, to, to further her brand and to, to sell her products, but without actually doing the work. And so she was actually doing quite a bit of harm and allowing quite a bit of harm to be done to women of color in her spaces. And mm -hmm. so having watched sort of some of this happen for a while, that was finally, there was finally a moment where it was just like too much. And I said explicitly what I was singing. And, um, and it sort of like, I said it like right as the wave of, was crashing that took her platform down. I mean, I'm sure it'll come back because I'm sure she's out there trying to figure out where to come from next. But mm -hmm. what ended up happening is that suddenly I had a lot of eyes on me. And um, when a lot of um, white women in my inbox be saying, talking about how they didn't know how to stand up, they didn't know how to, how to say something was wrong when they saw that it was happening, that they had seen the same thing happening and they didn't know how to speak up. Mm. So 
um, in all that, you know, suddenly like hundreds of new followers and a full inbox and just, you know, sort of being like, wow, okay, well, what do I do? So I, I, I talked to Lena about it and I was like, all right, I don't, I know that something is needed here because, you know, my inbox is literally full of people saying that they need something, but mm-hmm. I don't know what to give them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or even like, you know, and so Lena is brilliant. Um, and she basically was just like, call me and have a pen and paper ready. Mm-hmm. And so she, um, laid out the idea, like the, the basic structure for what then became the skeleton key dismantle, which you were in the first round of that in November. Yes. Um, I then approached, um, Stacey Jordan Shelton, um, mm-hmm. who has, um, a pretty amazing, like, she's a really amazing, uh, facilitator. She holds, um, courses called Unraveled. Um, mm-hmm. I approached her to see if she would be, um, willing to sort of help me because I knew I couldn't do this alone. I knew that if I was going to do this, I was going to need to have a lot of, um, a lot of accountability, uh, by partnering with women of color. So I first went to Stacey Jordan Shelton. She was down. And then I went to a longtime friend of mine, Bessie Pearl Jones, to see if she would also be um, interested in helping, partly because she's known me since I was like just little baby of like 20 years old so she can she knows my uh <laughs> she knows my patterns really well just from having like a decades-long friendship mm-hmm. so with and then Alexis Morgan also um offered the um like part like she created a, a, a reading list for the course it's not necessarily the reading list that we go through within the course itself but it's sort of like the 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 reading list the sort of umbrella reading list that yeah, also I'm- highlights the fact that I, I just say I'm, I'm slowly working my way through it, even though the yeah, course is exactly. finished, it's like, okay, what's, you exactly. know, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's also, that's part of the beauty of it. It's like, you know, people can sign up for the course ahead of time and start reading it. And people can, are definitely ideally going to be reading it after. It's a way of kind of highlighting that this is not a five week process. You have, this is a lifelong process. So with those women as, as primary supports and then and then also receiving feedback and support from other from other women of color. Um, I've I created this this course, and the thing is that this is not exactly what I want to be doing. It's not a comfortable uh, experience to be um, to be holding spaces for white women to be dismantling white supremacy. But it's what needs to happen, so it's what I'm doing. It's um, and I will continue to do it um as long as I am like physically and mentally able, and also as long as it's needed. It's like ideally someday it won't be needed, but right. for now we need all. If this is an all hands on deck situation, so I'm here and I'm doing what I can, and um, it's been an, a a wild ride of a few months suddenly kind of gaining all of this, all of these eyes on me for something that, you know, I've been having conversations about for, you know, a long time, for mm-hmm. over a decade at least, but um, hadn't really been kind of making a, a public stance as much as I suddenly now am. Right. So it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting ride for sure. Well, I'm so glad you're here to talk to us about it. So <laughs> for our listeners, let's, let's um, kind of let's kind of back it up and start with some basics. So can you tell us, first of all, what is white supremacy? And then more than that, why are we using that language? Like, why aren't we just talking Mm -hmm. about racism, for example? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to use a definition of white supremacy that one of the first, um, uh, first, that one of the participants in the first round of Dismantle gave. Mm. Um, White supremacy is the automatic assumption that anyone white is better than anyone who isn't white. 
And the reason that I love, love is maybe a weird word. The reason that I appreciate that definition is that it does not intellectualize it. It doesn't couch it in any kind of ism talk, right? It's mm-hmm. just, it goes straight to the gut. And that's why I use the word white supremacy and not racism. For one, because white people love, when cornered about to talk about white, uh, white supremacy and racism, white people love to throw out the, the reverse racism thing. And so by not calling it racism, I can sort of, I can start to sort of um, diminish the number of times that I have to enter into a conversation about how reverse racism doesn't exist. And we can talk about that here together as well. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, calling it white supremacy, it sounds, it sounds worse, right? It mm-hmm. sounds worse than racism. It's stronger language. And I need it. We need this to be strong. We need this to yes. hit people in the gut because too often, like for the entire history of America, white people don't really pay attention to racism. It's just like, oh, that's it, like, it's that, like, you know, it might be like, oh, that's so horrible over there. But then my place, by saying, I call it white supremacy, I'm trying to, to sort of really drive home the idea that the truth that white people are complicit in this. We are, we, we are never outside of it. It is not something that's happening over there unrelated to us. It is specifically related to us. So that's why I use the word white supremacy. That's that. Yeah, I think it's really important that we, you know, like you said earlier, call a thing a thing that we call this what it mm-hmm. is. And, you know, like you said, you know, it's, you know, with that assumption that white people are kind of better, like always assumed better. Um, what that yeah. the way that I see that working is that that's kind of the subconscious assumption that's happening into, you know, it everywhere um, within the, the U.S. And is, and is really, you know, when you look at the history, which we're going to talk about in a minute, really baked in to our laws and institutions and, um, and, and really the way that our country's been set up. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so I, I love, yeah, I love what, how you're kind of taking it away from racism because, you know, something that took me a little while to understand is that like, white supremacy is something that um, it, it can function without individual racists. Mm. Right? Be, because That's, of how it's been uh-huh. made, in, right? <clears throat> yeah. Well, right, I think like, um, I think what, what might be a clearer way to articulate that is that white supremacy is sort of like this default coding that we're all like, that uh. we are all um, sort of programmed to run on. Yes. So it's not so much that it functions without individual racists, because the truth is, is that we all, by, by growing up through a white supremacist culture, we are all racist. Got right? it. Like we have racism kind of encoded into us. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's not enough to say, I'm not a racist. Because, like, yes, that's, that's a good first step. You know what I mean? Like, keep certain words out of your mouth. Don't, you know, like, don't attack people of color for being of color. You know, like, that's a good first step. But it's not enough, because without actually addressing sort of the code, right? Like it's like, it's a code and mm-hmm. we're, so we're programmed to run on it without, uh, without addressing that white supremacy goes exactly as planned. This is all going exactly as planned. And that's it, the piece that's also crucial, right? But this is not a surprise. This is not some anomaly. This is a planned system. I, I just, I love that you're saying that. I love that analogy of code because it's like, then when you think about dismantling white supremacy, it's like, oh, we've got to like erase that code and write a new one. Exactly. Right? Well, also, it's not even just like code. It's like the, the thing that I like about that analogy is that it highlights too that white, whiteness and the construct of whiteness 
is not organic. My white skin is organic, but my, but the way that I have been sort of programmed into whiteness is not organic. So that also means that I can, like, part of what is crucial to, as we sort of, as we go into the process of dismantling and continue the process of dismantling is realizing that we are all, we are more than just white. We are always white. So we are more than just what the construct of whiteness has trained us to be. So that means when we dismantle whiteness, because what I think happens for a lot of white people, uh, I know it happened for me, is that at first it just feels like, well, what even is there left of me? If all, if like, if white supremacy is so through me and everything that I do is like, as a white person is like, is part of white supremacy, what is even going to be left? And the thing is, is that we are, we are organic. We are human. And but we have been, as white people, we have been so thoroughly programmed into white supremacy that we have to look for and find where that sort of code lives in us and get rid of it. And I'm not even sure that we need to write a new code because I'm not even sure that like having that sort of like technological, you know, I think that there's a lot of like, there's lots, there's so much room for imagination of what kind of futures are possible. But until we remove the co- this code and this sort of, this, structure this construct then we don't have we there's no place to grow from there because we're like we're we're contained within a grid it's colonization that's another word that i think that works that works you know that works pretty much as well as white supremacy there what i what um what i hesitate with in using colonization is that it takes away the the implied responsibility of white people to it because it Although, you know, all you need to do is peel back the slightest layer of history and you're like, oh, no, that's white supremacy. It's colonization. Yeah. So we're in a decolonization process. We're yes. rewilding, right? Yeah. We're, we're like re-earthing ourselves because right. whiteness also, white supremacy also has like, it's taken us away from the actual natural earth. It puts mm-hmm. us into a, in, it puts us into a, um, a ruler place. Right? That we rule the earth, we rule the land, we control it, we control others, we control everything, everything that is there is ours to take, and, and we owe no responsibility or, or respect to, to, that, to that process. That's white supremacy as well. That's, that's, the, that's the deep underlying code that we need to systematically dismantle within ourselves. Yeah, and I, and I love the way that you explain that because I think that through your explanation, um, it can it's pretty easy to see why white people have to actually have to do this confronting of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I think that you know before I was really educated on this, I was, you know, there was this part of me that's like, well, that's like something that people of color are doing. You know, it's like I mean, I feel mm-hmm. so terrible for thinking that now, but it's like, oh, like we built white supremacy. My ancestors built white supremacy on purpose. And mm-hmm. so it's only mm-hmm. through my active dismantling of it, right, that that, that can be broken down. And so I, th- I think you're, I think that everything you just said there really speaks to that, that why. Um, so, cool. so, you know, <laughs> one thing that listeners might be wondering is like, okay, I'm white, you're white. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, you know, I imagine some listeners might be thinking, so, you know, why are you white ladies talking about this? Like, why isn't there <laughs> you know, like a person of color here as like, you know, a quote unquote expert, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is always a good question. I, 
I want to always remind us all that we should always question everything right, right? Like always question everything right, including ourselves. Uh-huh. So the thing is, though, that you just talked about how we actually do need, as white people, we need to be addressing this, which means that there can't always be a person of color in the room. And ideally, we're going to get skilled enough at this that there doesn't always need to be that sort of, because it's one thing to have a person of color as an expert. It's another thing to ask a person of color to kind of be the babysitter or the caretaker for white people as we sort of, as we broach these topics. Mm-hmm. What we do need to always have, though, is accountability, is relationships that create accountability. If we're always having conversations about, right, white, about race in all white spaces, if we have no actual relationships with people of color, and relationships, I mean, like, like living, breathing, reciprocal relationships, then that is a problem because we are going to mess this up. And mm-hmm. so we definitely need to have people of color who are there to, you know, that in, in relationship with us can, can help us learn and grow. And in relationship with us, I mean friends. I mean um, people that we are paying to help teach us. Mm-hmm. I, mean put it, I mean consistently seeking out real relationships of, of people of color, not just like sort of superficial or, um, and, and not even just, and not even just, um, you know, like following is really important, like following and, and reading people of color, but having relationships right? Absolutely. So then we can have conversations about this in all white spaces because we have to have conversations about this in all white spaces because as soon as a person of color comes into the room, some white people are going to start tripping out and like not being able to actually say what it needs to be said. There, bec- there becomes this sort of like fear of, of doing harm, this sort of uh, fear of being seen as racist. It's like it happens um, frequently. And so mm-hmm. as white people having conversations in all white spaces, we're able to have conversations that are necessary in ways that can almost only happen in all white spaces. So that's like, I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that all conversations should happen in all white spaces at all. Right. I'm saying conversations about whiteness do need to happen in all white spaces. But I also want to be clear that when I'm in an all white space, I am not talking about how to be an ally and I'm not talking about what people of color need. I'm talking about whiteness. And when I'm in a place of, when I'm in a diverse conversation, I'm listening. And that's also crucial. When people of color, like when we're in a a conversation about allyship, I don't use the word allyship, but about how to be accomplices basically with people of color. When we're in a conversation, when we're like being, you know, lucky enough to hear what people of color have to say to white people, we need to listen. Then when we're in a conversation with white people about, about this, we're talking about whiteness. I'm not going to talk about what people of color need me to do. I want to talk about what whiteness is and what whiteness requires to dismantle itself or to dismantle, um, for us to dismantle it, I should say. I think that's such an important distinction to really turn the lens around and say, no, like we're not, we're not talking about people of color. We're actually talking Mm -hmm. about whiteness. We're talking about, you Mm -hmm. know, and like you said, white supremacy has made it so that whiteness is like the standard. Whiteness is like the status quo. And so, and so everything else is other. And what this process that you're talking about says is like, no, that's wrong. We're going to actually turn the lens around and say, let's actually look at the standard yeah. and, and work there, which I just think is, is really yeah. brilliant. And sometimes, you know, it's just, I think it's like counterintuitive to our programming, you know, the programming of white mm-hmm. supremacy 
Tracy, you know, trains us to be, to, to look outward. And so especially like really well-meaning white people can, we can just get really confused. And so I, I love what mm -hmm. you said about, we need to look at whiteness and dismantle whiteness. Yes. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and then the, the other piece about, you know, you know, not always, you know, running to a person of color for question is about the incredible amounts of emotional labor that people of color yeah. are doing in so many spaces for white people to come to terms with their whiteness. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I was actually just having a conversation with a friend about this yesterday, um, who's Latina, and we were talking about how, you know, like, Basically, people of color need to have places where they can speak about the rage and pain and, and suffering that they've, that they've experienced at the hands of white people without needing to worry or tend to the feelings of white, peop of, of, uh, of white people because white supremacy means that um, it's always dangerous to have a white person upset if you're a person of color. It's always dangerous to upset a white person because you never know when the fragility is going to, turn, is going to be weaponized. Yeah, but then, so so on that end, we need to have they 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 need to be able to to have their own feelings. And on the other end, it's like we're you know in the courts holding it for just white people for just white women. Part of that is that that way I can you can have your emotional experience about being white, the shame and the guilt and the pain that are going to come. Like they are they are a part of dismantling whiteness is having incredible amounts of painful shame and guilt. But I, but as, but in doing it in a, in an all white space with me as a white woman holding the space as the facilitator, that means that the brunt of that of receiving that is on is the burden is on a white person, so that mm -hmm. I can hear it and then it's and then be able to say I get it, I hear it, and you have to keep going. You can't stay here. Mm -hmm. Versus asking a person of color to do that all the time. It means that they have to then override all of them, their own emotions about it. And that's not to say that a person of color can't do it because there are really skilled facilitators who are people of color who do this work and they are incredibly skilled at it and that is wonderful. It's just not fair to ask only people of color to do it because it's not, like they, they deserve to have, other, um, to have other areas to fill in this. Like for one, my hope in doing in leading a course like the one I lead is not to somehow like you know now we're done now we don't need to actually keep going at all. <laughs> My hope if there if I have a hope it's that now after going through a process like the one that we go through in the course that I lead is that now we can as white women join into conversations with people of color, be able to hear what they have to say in a way that doesn't that our whiteness doesn't come in and and cause harm, cause more harm. Like, and, and also that we are actually able to hear what they're saying and not center ourselves um, into the conversation. Because that's really, you know, women, of, like people of color, especially women of color, especially, and I'm going to say like black women and indigenous women, because as like, as the most oppressed, because, they, because the, the systems of the power, the systems of oppression have, have most extremely oppressed First Nations women and black women. Mm -hmm. Not to say that Latino women and Asian Americans don't, and Asian women don't also experience oppression, but on like a, in terms of the intersecting lenses of oppression, mm -hmm. um, First Nations women and Black women are, uh, are receiving, you know, the, the, a greater brunt of the pressure. Mm -hmm. So those women then have, and also trans women, I want to, I want to make sure that right. I'm not, right. because the, the course is held for just cis women. And that's because to be a trans woman is to also experience a great amount of oppression. Mm -hmm. 
so by if we're going to be actually like creating something that is new and and like you know only just beginning to be imagined which is a world without colonization and white supremacy mm-hmm. white white women are not going to be the ones that create that create the blueprint for that world because we are still like we have too much work ahead of us to actually dismantle the whiteness that we're programmed with so all what we need to be able to do is learn to be able to truly hear and listen and believe people of color, especially women of color, because they're the ones that are going, that have, that have the vision for what we can, what we can become. Like they're the ones that have this, this, that can, that can help us remember the earth, remember ourselves, remember who we were before we were white. Our ancestors became white. And that means that because like genetically, you know, it's not like like you don't do a DNA test and have it come back. Like, you know, 40% white, you do a DNA test and you have it come back. Like, 20% 20% English and 15% Scandinavian, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. We became white. So this is also a, this is a remembering. This is a forgetting of whiteness and a remembering of what was before. We have a lot more, we have a lot more forgetting to do, a lot more remembering to do. So we have to listen to the women of color who still remember, who still, who are trying to have us listen. So yeah. we, in all white spaces, we need to dismantle it. Yes, I, I love that. I love, um, I love how you talk about how important it is for us to just listen, um, first of all. And mm. the thing that I really love about your course is that for me, I found that it helped me get through some of those initial emotions so that I could just sit mm-hmm. and, and be in spaces and listen. And, you know, another thing that you were talking about is that we became white. And you had... Um, uh, referenced a really great resource, um, a podcast called Seen on Radio, mm-hmm. and they have a series called Seen White. And so after the, um, the course that I took with you, I started going through this podcast, and it was incredibly helpful for me to understand the greater historical concept of concepts and constructs about the building of race. Because, you know, mm-hmm. you know, back in the, uh, let's see, I think it was like the, you know, 16, 1700s, they, there was this idea created that race was biological, which is not Mm -hmm. true. Like it's been been completely defunct, but I think it still floats around in kind of that white supremacy code, right? That program. Oh yeah, absolutely. Run on, right? And and race is in no way biological, genetic, scientific. And in fact, I think I said in the series something like white people have more in common genetically with people of color than we do like our, our cousin. You know, it is right, right. Yeah, really interesting example. It's so cool, and and really, the 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 other thing that that um, series showed us showed really specifically was how racism and white supremacy was created specifically as a justification for slave traders to continue slavery and to keep wealthy white people in positions of power. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't yeah. actually, and, and I think that's just really important for white people to get. It wasn't that like we started having racist ideas and then built laws around them. It was actually, you no, know, we built laws to keep mm-hmm. people of color enslaved and then we became racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah. Because basically, and this is where like the white, like the white supremacy is colonization because uh-huh. We like the the ruling class needed a way to justify 
um, taking, like, you know, taking everything up to and including humans yes. to serve their purposes. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's and just, it, I mean, and it continues today to, to justify the prison industrial complex. Black, exactly. black and brown people don't actually commit more crimes. They just get, they just get put into prison more often. Exactly. They actually don't commit more crimes. Exactly. Yeah. Because those, you know, those, I, those ideas, those racist ideas that came out of those laws are still so pervasive um, within mm-hmm. us. And I, you know, and something that, that really struck me too, is that, you know, we, we often go to this, um, to the constitution, you know, all men are created equal. And in that series, it was really fascinating for me to learn that Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, had like some decent ideas, about the Constitution, um, was publicly an Anglo-Saxonist, meaning that he really believed that Anglo-Saxons, aka white people, were like the superior race. And so then mm-hmm. you have to think that when he, when he helped write that line that all men are created equal, he was not talking about people of color. He was not talking no. about no. black men, right? And so we, you know, we no. built a nation, like we literally built a nation on these ideas of white people being more human than people of color. Mm-hmm. And so I just right. love how you talk about um, white supremacy being colonization, something that we white people need to decolonize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So let's talk a little bit more about these challenges that we as white people face when we're addressing white supremacy. And the, and the big one um, is white fragility, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, Basically, right, this concept, this is how I understand it, but I'd love to have you add here, um, you know, basically that we have a lowered, uh, you know, a very low capacity for handling issues regarding race because we're not really trained to do so. You know, we haven't had to face Mm -hmm. white very much, right? And so we kind of fall apart Mm -hmm. in lots of different ways. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. I mean, also... You know, this is also where we fall apart, but in ways that have been coded by the patriarchy as well. So, mm. um, you know, men tend to get very angry and, um, and women tend to get um, very sad. And that's, you know, obviously there's individual sort of differences, but, mm-hmm. um, but those are, that's, that, that's the coding of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, white fragility. I just did a Facebook Live a few days ago about this. So if people check out my Facebook, they can, or maybe you can include that, um, like a link to it in sure. when you send this quote, this out, yep. because I talked about white fragility as, um, like the metaphor I've been thinking about it through is almost like white, like white fragility is almost like glass, like whiteness is almost like glass and white fragility is the shattering of that glass. And then shards of glass become weapons. So the, wep- the, the, sh- the shattering of the glass of whiteness. Um, becomes this weapon that we then use against people of color. So yeah. we get told that we're white and shown that we're white. And, um, and because, and I think that, you know, part of it is that, um, you know, people get defensive around things that they haven't examined. And, exactly. Um, and that and cause a lot of discomfort, right? A lot. Yeah. And it's yeah. also, you know, so I think that on a, I, I, you know, and I'm also, I'm talking to people who would say I'm not a racist here right now because bigots have a different reaction. And, and also there needs to be a distinction between a bigot and a racist. A bigot are where the torch carriers down in Charlottesville. Those are bigots. A racist is a person who would actually say I'm not racist, but then when told that they're white, respond with any of the symptoms of white fragility. Um, 
so I'm speaking to all of us as people who are at, at any, like, you know, are, are working on our own racism, not, not bigotry. If you're a bigot, you're not listening to me. Or if you are, you're, <laughs> you have things to say. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, we can laugh. <laughs> so, right. um, so white fragility is this, you know, it, um, it expresses itself as, um, as denial, distancing, guilt, shame, sadness, and tears you know, those classic white women tears, um, and anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it's anything, anything that is not when someone, when a person of color, especially shows us that we're white, but even when a white person says like, Hey, this thing that you're doing is white. Anything that is not like, wow. Okay. I'm going to like, thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to look at that. Anything that's not that. And I mean like an authentic that, not just like, you know, the, because we're about to start seeing a lot of people start to realize what kind of language they need to use around white fragility, and they're going to start using it. And it's not going to be an actual, real, lived exploration into whiteness. They're just going to say the words they need to say to not get in trouble, right? Mm. But if it's like in anything less than a true and honest, real like acceptance and commitment to using what has just been pointed out to dig deeper into the the like into our own racism and white supremacy anything that's not that is white is white fragility and so and it's not to say that that's not going to like you know again this is not a set it and forget it kind of thing I experience it still the idea is that ideally as we work through it we learn to contain it and so that we like we have our we have our reactions to it and then get to work faster get to work faster yes and, um, and, and with less and less of the denial Yes. And so I, I think that this is like, this is the place that all of that somatic work, all of the work on resiliency and building capacity mm-hmm. comes into place so that when we meet that point of discomfort, when we've been called out on something, instead of just jumping into that fragility, we can, you know, call on those inner resources, take a deep breath, you know, calm down our, our nervous system and be able to say, oh, thank you. I'm going to look at that. Yeah. Work on changing my behavior. Right. You know, exactly, and, and, exactly. and, and, I, and I don't know if this is the right um, kind of analogy to draw, but, you know, I'm seeing this right now um, in terms of um, sexism and all the sexual allegations um, that, that are happening in the United States against men and seeing, you know, it's not white fragility necessarily. I would maybe call it toxic masculinity where it's, it's not like they're not listening there's not like a listening happening. There's kind of a centering of their shame or a pushback or a defensiveness, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I kind of, that helps me be able to orient myself within um, then th- these uh, concepts of white supremacy. Because, you know, I'm looking at, at those um, sexual allegations from a feminist standpoint saying, um, like, j- j- just listen. Like, just listen, <laughs> show us that you've listened, right? Right, And so then I can orient myself, right, and go, oh, I just need to listen, right? And, and then, mm-hmm. you know, obviously feminism without um, people of color is not true feminism, and uh, that's maybe a subject for right. something else, but right, I just want to um, say that. So yeah, you know, this is where, uh, and I love what you did in your course, Abigail, where you include these somatic exercises, um, in your course, wow. so that when we're working through these difficult things, we're also learning how to build capacity, how to become resilient, mm-hmm. how to be able to meet our discomfort. Right. 
Yeah, because we have to listen and then we have to act. We have to act, we have to do better. We have to yes. listen to the ways that we're being shown that we need to do better, and then we have to actually do better. Otherwise, it's just hollow. Exactly. And so, yeah, I think that it is, you know, like watching the whole, watching Me Too happen. Me Too, the Me Too movement is actually a really interesting place because an interesting, um, a very interesting and multi-layered phenomenon. Because yes, you have like now we have men having to deal with toxic masculinity. We also have white feminism in full force because Me Too was a movement started by women of color, specifically right. one. A black woman and then white women took it and now it's just kind of like it's becoming the sort of like it's becoming a real poster child for what happens within white feminism where women of color do the do the the heavy lifting work and then white women come in and use that work for our own gains and exactly. meanwhile forgetting everyone that has already been doing the work before and Toronto Burke actually did an excellent job of making sure that she did not get forgotten. So she deserves like not only accolades for making sure for doing the work that she did for 10 years before Me Too became a thing, mm -hmm. but then also the work that she did to make sure that she didn't, that, that the movement didn't, um, that the movement didn't lose its integrity because she right. had it in integrity. It wasn't just a hashtag. It was an actual specific, well thought out strategic support network, support system, like a system of support for women who face um, sexual assault. And if it had just stayed a hashtag, then there, you know, even, even with it gaining its popularity in the way that it did, a lot of sort of like um, reverberating harm was done because when you, when you get that vulnerable in that way without a, without a way to sort of like hold it safely, that's a very dangerous thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I just, I have a lot of respect for Toronto Burke for both, of her, both her work and what she was doing and also, and what she is doing, but also the way that she didn't let white feminism take her work away from her. Right, but it she, also, it deserves to be marked that she had to fight for that, right? It's like right. she had to put in a lot of work to keep her work her own because white feminism was ready to just come take it right away. And we it were, is still also taking some of it away. Like, with, like that, that um, who is it that's getting the, like, mini documentary series or whatever? And, you know, she uh, wasn't even on the cover of Time. Like, just oh, all these things where right, it's like, right, this is what white feminism does. Yes. Okay, we so colonize. It takes the work it, of women. It, it colonizes. Yeah, we colonize. Yeah, it takes something, it takes the labor yeah. of something else and then just takes it for its own. Yeah. Yes, so let's, exactly. and, yeah, let's dive into, and, and I want to talk here a second about sensitive spiritual white women and how this applies. Because, uh -huh. um, you know, that's the majority of people um, that, that, I, that, that I work with that come to me. And, and I want to talk about, I think a lot of it's obvious from what we talked about, like why it's our job just as white people um, and white women to come mm -hmm. into this. But there's a lot of, I think, additional problems that uh, spiritual white people uh, create. Right. So there's there's this pattern I see in spiritual communities where where they try to apply spiritual principles. So principles that work kind of in the subtle realm to racial problems, which are, you know, problems in the physical world. And, and it's often done with this, you know, oh, we have these great intentions of like uniting us all. But but the effect is that it ignores real world differences. It ignores nuance. It ignores traumas. Um, and mm -hmm. it ignores, you know, the, just the real stories that, that really make us different. So it's, 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 it's also a way of whitewashing. It's also a way of colonizing. Absolutely. 
right? And upholding the system that you think is bad. And, and oftentimes we have these, you know, spiritual platitudes that um, make us feel really good about what we're doing, you know, kind of personally in our spiritual practice, um, but are actually um, uh, uh, contributing very directly to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think that, you know, something that I've always been really into to, um, to, to teaching, I teach spiritual work, but um, spiritual, spiritual work has to apply to us in the body on the planet and the problems that we face on the planet. Mm-hmm. Right? Otherwise, it's yeah. A, yeah. otherwise, it's just a way of bypassing everything that's actually mm-hmm. real, right? Well, it's, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's fake. It's fake. Exactly. And, it's just an imagination. I think that, um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that also one of the things that it's like, you know, you're, you're talking about how your audience uh, is so sensitive and so, and kind of like this canary in the coal mine, like being able to mm-hmm. feel. And I think mm-hmm. that that actually is one of the most painful things about being a very, like a sensitive kind of like intuitive person, white person in America who has not yet faced white supremacy mm-hmm. is that we know like we know yeah. that something's not right. Like there's something, yeah. there's something right now also, like for anyone listening, you know, or you wouldn't be listening to this, right? Yeah. Like there yeah. might be parts of you that are struggling against hearing this because it's not a comfortable thing to hear, mm-hmm. but somewhere, you know, and Anna, you can remember that in the course, we talked a lot about, like we often mentioned how it felt, it didn't feel good to be having these conversations, but it felt better than not having them. And it, because we know that it's happening and it felt, and it, and what did feel good is having it in the company of people who knows that it's happening. That, that was the biggest surprise for me is I didn't realize how, how much of a heartening experience it would be to mm-hmm. be in the presence of, of other women who were committed to making, to, to looking at white supremacy. Um, you know, I knew it was going to be challenging. I knew it was going to be difficult. I knew it was going to be a, a, a very, like a razor's edge kind of space to hold. Mm-hmm. But um, again and again, it was like, it was like, oh, right. Like how it's, it's like, it's not a relief. Relief isn't a good enough word, but there's just, there's a little bit of more like space when you don't have to, when you're not, when you're no longer fighting against the truth, when you're just like, okay, yes. this is true. Yes. I've been pretending it's not true my entire life. Yes. So what happens when I draw it closer rather than trying to push it away? And so like, you know, we say about how like, you know, like just don't be a racist, you know, is not enough. In part, yes. it's not enough because it actually is like it's pushing the racism away when what we need yeah. to do is draw it in closer to look at it. Because when you draw it in closer, then all of the energy that you've been that we've been putting our entire mm-hmm. lives to pushing away racism. And I'm I'm 35, so I grew up right in the in the like I grew up watching Rodney King, watching the Rodney King riots but also of the era where you weren't even supposed to say the word black or, right. yes. or Latino or anything like that. Right. Yes. Um, it was like, you know, I like, don't see color. So the, right. there's been a lot of, for, especially for, for those of us in, in art, I'm, I'm thinking we're probably on the same age in our generation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, we've spent our entire lives trying to pretend that something that is true is not true. Right. Yes. Trying to pretend that we don't see color. It's like, what are you talking about? Of course you see yeah. color. It's like, and it's that, right here. Yeah, and, that's, <laughs> and I know that that creates a really deep discomfort with us highly sensitive people because we sense all this subtle stuff. And so, you know, we're sensing 
sensing that and that incongruency, that lie doesn't sit well. Right with us, you exactly, know, so exactly. not at all. And so I really like what you said and, and you, and you kind of just continued on, but you said, you know, when we actually bring it closer and we examine it and we work with it, we create more space. Yeah. We create more space yeah. within our systems. We create more space within our mind. And, and the way that I've noticed it in, in my own life happening is like, it's as if I didn't even know that there was a wall on one side of my psyche. And now that it's busted open, it's like, oh my gosh, like it's a whole new horizon. Um, and right. there's, there's yeah. so many places to go and it's unexplored, right? You know, moving forward in this decolonization um, and, and trying to do some of this work is it's unexplored. So it's a little scary. You know, I, I know mm -hmm. I'm going to, I know I'm going to mess it up because that's inevitable that I, as a white person, will mess up. Um, and mm -hmm. um, the more that I'm able to bring this discomfort um, closer and look at it and listen, right, then I, then I know that I can continue um, exploring this new, this new place. Right. Yeah, yeah and that's crucial. That's yes. Crucial. You know, and something You're I remember... always be in a place of learning. Yes. And something that I remember... Um, that came up in the course that has just really stuck with me, Abigail, was this idea of, you know, capacity that we've kind of been talking about. And mm -hmm. I remember someone saying like, well, I'm just at capacity. And I remember you said, well, just because we're at capacity doesn't give us a pass. And mm -hmm. I was so struck by that because, you know, I've been talking about this in the podcast, but there's so much information that says, all right, you're highly sensitive. So, you know, like go ahead and hibernate, like the world is hard and you feel it. And, and, and I'm saying, no, like, yes, the world is hard and you feel it and we still need you. You know, we mm -hmm. need you. So do the self-care that helps you find resilience. It helps you call on your resource so that you can come back and join us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, self-care is just, it's, um, the word is escaping me right now, but it's like self-care is just like, it's superfluous. It's frivolous. Yes. Self-care yes. that is not, that is not, that is not tending to yourself so that you can remain present and and you know like remain resisting mm -hmm. um it's it is it's frivolous and it's, it's it's consumerism you know yes. it's just like oh yes. i need to i need to go buy the thing i need to go buy that thing versus yeah. like you know drink water like uh lena was just talking because it's you know i've had to i've had to definitely increase my capacity yeah. through stepping into these conversations mm -hmm. um as a as a for some of their roles too and i was talking with lena about it the other day just like you know sharing the the ways that I was finding myself that sort of overwhelmed and she was just like she was just like stay hydrated moisturize live your life like that's like that's your self-care <laughs> and I swear to god though I swear to all the gods and goddesses I like since she told me that like you know a few days ago I've just been making sure like every time like you know when I start to like I just I drink a lot more I'm drinking a lot more water it's it's strange I'm like wow okay I guess my body is like processing through so much stuff but I'm drinking a lot of water. I'm like, I, you know, I, I make sure that I like, you know, I do the like moisturizing and, you know, taking good care of myself and meditating and, and yep. eating well and sleeping well and like stepping away from the, com from Facebook at night. And like, you know, it's not starting again until after I've had the, had some, like, you know, had my cup of coffee and like kind of thought, thought through the day, because then, you know, once, once the day, like once that's, once it starts, 
I need to be here. Like I need to yes. be engaged and present and not mm-hmm. just on Facebook. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah. you know, everywhere. Like, but that's the thing. It's like, by having it be so, um, like Facebook opens us up to even more conversations. But uh, I was just talking with another um, past participant on the course and really like the, the, the beautiful thing I see about Facebook though is that it opens up in-person conversations later because someone yes. says to you like oh I saw this thing that you posted and I'm curious about it and then you get to have an in-person conversation but all mm-hmm. of that is to say that we need to take we need to tend to ourselves because um burnout helps no one right but and if you're like you know yeah you can't just like you can't just be privileged with it right we have to take <laughs> care of ourselves but you know personal personal growth does not equal collective liberation Right. Per- well, also, I mean, like personal growth can't really happen without collective liberation. So exactly. if you're not, if you're not, if you're just like staying at your own navel, you're actually not going to go anywhere. Exactly. So and, and I think you feel I, good. You feel better. Yes. Right. Like you feel well, like a little like, but it's on one level. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, again, one of those spiritual myths. It's like, you know, if you just like sit and like just meditate, like the world will change. And I'm like, it, you know, maybe, but like at a rate that is way too slow at a, a rate that, <laughs> you know, not supportive of like actual problems on the ground. Right. So, all right, Abigail, exactly. let's, uh, let's talk about some details about your course because it's coming up quick. Yeah. 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 We start, um, we start February 4th. So the last day to register is February 2nd. Okay. Um, it is five weeks. So it goes from February 4th to March 10th. And within that, those five weeks, we have four phone calls. Um, the phone calls last two hours, uh, and the, I hold the space. I, uh, the space is, the course maxes out at 22 women, with, so that in those two hours, um, every woman will have a space to talk. Um, mm-hmm. Those calls are, are recorded, but they are not shared. So they're recorded so that I'm held accountable for what is said in the space and what I say in the space, um, but they're not shared because participation is mandatory like you can't just be a bystander in this um I love that. but I, a large part of the work is that yeah oh i love that a i remember when you said that do, yeah part of me was like mm-hmm. oh really you know it's like there's that just so it's it's good, it's good I know. <laughs> yeah. and then um and then a large part of what we do actually happens on um a platform called mighty networks which is as Similar to Facebook, but specifically not Facebook. Also, like if anyone's taken a college class that has had like an online learning space, it, it feels a lot like that. And that's where people come in, the women come in. Um, I, I give specific readings to do. I give specific homework assignments to do. And then you come in and you share your answers to those homework assignments. And then I give responses. The idea is that, um, you know, I close my inbox to participants in the course, uh, my personal inbox for the five weeks of the course, because um, we need to be doing this work and we need to be doing this work in a visible way, like in a visible way amongst each other, because the, we've created a safe container to do the dirty work. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the way that we're all learning. Like that's like talking about pacing, right? Like if, if we're just meditating alone, so the, our pace is so, the pace is so slow as to be almost negligible. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get together, when we meet together and we do our work in that public, in that like, you know, visible way, mm-hmm. um, when we share our process with one another in a, sa- in a space that is safe but not comfortable, then the work, it really speeds up. And I think you can probably speak to that with more, like, you know, I'd love to hear your take on that. But I was really, I was, again, the word I keep on coming to is heartened. I was like, 
-hmm. heartened by the way that work that women um, grew into the work at a very fast rate. You know, like it just seemed like there was desire and there was attention and there was a space to do it in and then work flourished. So I'd love to actually hear your, your take on that as a past participant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. So having to show up live was uncomfortable for me. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, mm-hmm. you know, put that out there. It was uncomfortable for me. Um, it, you know, and I think there was this way that my system was kind of resisting, like really having to do that work, like really having to look, but you know, when I was there, there was, it was really heartening. There was a way, Abigail, that you were able to keep this uncomfortable space incredibly safe. And there was so Mm. much learning that um, happened just by listening to the, the, the journeys of other participants. And, uh, Mm. and so and so from, and the mighty networks thing was awesome. I love that it was off of Facebook, by the way, because it felt, you know, it really felt like a really safe container. And it, mm-hmm. and even, you know, I remember one of our assignments was to, to kind of, you know, post in the ways that we're noticing whiteness, so, you know, our own whiteness. Um, and that mm-hmm. was so fascinating to me. And I, you know, even when, I didn't have time that day, you know, cause I'm a mom like to, to jump on and put the, I was always thinking about it, like always thinking mm-hmm. about like, oh, where's my whiteness. And so I just received kind of this, this great new lens, uh, for seeing my life. And then, you know, when I did was able to create the time to jump on mighty networks, it was so great to see what other people were doing. Um, and you offer really, really thoughtful responses and were able to, you know, call us out, um, in ways that were, uh, you know, really truthful, but really compassionate. And I, I, I so mm-hmm. appreciated that about you because, uh, you know, I can imagine as a facilitator, um, it can be challenging to support women in their fr- fragility without like perpetuating that fragility, right? With mm-hmm. able to, you know, being able to say as you were like, actually, here's where you're making a mistake. I, you know, try to examine that mm-hmm. a bit more. So, yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I just really recommend for all of you listeners who are going like, wow, I really need to look at white supremacy and I have no idea where to start. Start with Abigail's mm-hmm. dismantle course. It, it, it is Thank a wonderful, you. wonderful starting point. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Awesome. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I will post um, a link to the course under the show notes, um, but it's mm-hmm. at um, um forward slash dismantle. Um, and so I'll mm-hmm. make sure that's in all the information, you know, and uh, okay. as we get ready to sign off here, Abigail, what's one thing you would like our listeners to know? Oh, one thing. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think that the thing that's bubbling up is that uh, you are simultaneously more and less than white supremacy has taught you that taught you that you are. But the truth of who you are, once this, once white supremacy begins to crumble inside of your own blood and bones and guts, the truth of who you are is more exquisitely exquisitely beautiful than you can ever imagine. So, that's the one thing. 
Oh, thank you so much, Abigail, for being with uh, being here with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Anna, for having me. I really, I'm really honored that you opened up your space and your audience to what I have to say. No problem. All right, take care. You too. For information on everything shared here, including show notes and links, visit www.sensitivityuncensored.com forward slash soul of sensitivity.